0: Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show.
1: Today, I'm speaking with Doug Boneparth. He's a financial planner and the founder of Bonafide Wealth. He focuses on the millennial demographic. He's a very funny presence on Twitter, often tweeting out hilarious observations. He also has a Substack called This is the Top. Doug and his wife, Heather, also operate a blog called The Joint Account, where they help couples talk about money. Welcome to the podcast, Doug. Yeah,
0: happy to be here.
1: Thanks for coming on. So, how'd you first catch the bug? How'd you first get interested in investing?
0: Yeah, I grew up the son of a certified financial planner. So I've been surrounded by pretty much wealth management my entire life. Entrepreneurship, just from a long line of entrepreneurs and self-starters, indoctrinated at a pretty young age. And I've used my experience early on to my benefit in building my own wealth management firm.
1: Awesome. And what are your main investing influences? Who's influenced you the most in terms of like investing philosophy?
0: I'm a really boring investor, so that's going to go to your boggles of the world and Warren Buffett's very cliche answers here, but they got it pretty much right. My overall philosophy with investing, the thing that messes up any investment strategy the most is you. <laughs> it's the proverbial you. You're your own worst enemy there. And as we see behavioral finance become more and more popular, and for very good reason, we're going to see more and more that, Hey, if you simply can be consistent and disciplined, you can win the game of investing. That is probably more paramount than what style of investing you're adopting, right? Now, clearly there are many bad ways to go about investing, but if you were to pick a pretty well accepted methodology, whether you're a passive investor or you believe in active investing or you believe in a certain sector like technology or value-based investing, your ability to hold to your strategy over a very long period of time is what usually yields the results you're looking for. Those risk premiums start to become uh, realized when you exhibit good behavior. So all the greats that align with that philosophy are my influences. And it's probably more of a behavioral side, even Looking at valuation or analysis, I mean, I have a great appreciation for folks who are pouring into annual reports or creating sophisticated charts. I mean, I know some great ones, and that's not me, right? So it's about discipline, consistency, and sticking to plans, a la the financial planner.
1: So in that vein, like, what do you think are the biggest behavioral pitfalls that most investors fall into?
0: Yeah, I think when things get wild, when emotions run high, and usually these are things that may have to do with the economy, right? And Mm -hmm. that dovetails into your jobs and things that really take part in your life. You can't have personal finance without the word personal. So and almost everyone's unique, right? And having said that, when we examine our lives, it could be our jobs, it could be our families, it could be external forces, internal forces that we can or cannot control. These are the things that make us want to do something. you see the market come crashing down. There's always that client, not my practice, but there's always a client that's like, I need you to do something about this. We're down 15%, you know, do <laughs> something like yeah, like, okay, let me turn the economy and the market around for you. Obviously, <laughs> I don't have those powers, but it's in those moments where I think you are being tested the most to see if you have the capacity to shake out that noise and shake off those feelings and remember that that is part of the game. And I love the people who are like, oh, that's because you're long only and you should be hedging and doing proper risk management. Absolutely, that's right for people who have the time, energy, wherewithal and understanding to do that. But at the same time, there's no 20 rolling year period where the market is negative, right? And risk premiums do occur over your ability to stay invested for very long periods of time. The thing is, we're not built for that humans at our DNA level are, don't let lion eat you today, survive for tomorrow. Granted, you got to go back a long time for that to be (laughs) the reality, but that's pre-programmed in us. So we're we're very short-term driven creatures as opposed to, hey, I'm going to stick to a certain thing for the next two decades.
1: Yeah, I read something once that the someone did some weird study where they said that psychopaths are the best investors because they don't have emotional responses to anything. Yeah.
0: Rather than applaud the psychopaths for being great investors, <laughs> there's, probably some, there's definitely got to be some truth to that. How about the story about the investor who loses their username or password to their account for like 15, 20 years and they go log in and they see that their target date fund or just their investment in the S&P 500 has rewarded them fairly well. Virtually all other investors who are trying to do stuff and make things happen here. So yeah, there's lots of cool stories like that that don't involve psychopaths, but even the psychopaths, I guess, get some investment things right from time to time.
1: Yeah, there's this story. It might just be fake, but I don't know. Some lady invested $10,000 in a Vanguard index fund in like 1976, called up after the crash of 87, freaking out. And is like, how much am I down? And they said, oh, you're down to 170 grand <laughs> from a $10,000 investment. So yeah.
0: shocked to learn that she's 17 extra investment. So yeah, exactly. The other part of it is we lead with financial planning and I'm obviously all bought in on the financial planning process. I have yet to find too many people like, no, that's bad. Putting together a formal plan that covers every corner of your financial life equal bad. Never in my life heard someone say that. It's obviously a good thing. And Yes, it's self-serving to say I believe in financial planning, but academic rigor and systems around certain processes and things that need to be done in order to actually function a healthy financial life. These are inherently good things. And that's what helps us deal with the behavior. That's what helps us be consistent investors because the investment planning piece is, is just one part of the puzzle. So I want to put it out there, a very strong believer in that planning side, which is not a cure-all, but a very effective way to keep individuals consistent. And again, just to kind of triple down on that, that's what's necessary here to be a successful investor. It also helps set expectations, I think, is one of the greatest components of planning. You can very clearly see what the expected or required rate of return is on your capital, on your asset base in order to fund the goals that you have for yourself. I think the novice investors, like, I want to make as much return as humanly possible. And, you know, (laughs) period, end of sentence. It's like, what? (laughs) All right, how much? Let's start to layer that a little bit, contextualize that. First of all, why? <laughs> What's your why for that? You want to go out and get double digit returns on a consistent basis. We're going to talk about the risk that you need to take in order to accomplish that and how much time we have to invest to get that. That's over here, but how about just the why? What's this for? Well, if you told me you wanted to retire or achieve financial independence to the tune of a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, starting Mm -hmm. at age 45, and you see where I'm going with this, we can then start to look at the other variables necessary to come up with an output. The probability of you being able to do that, what rates of return are we talking about? Inflation, how much do you currently have saved? What can you consistently contribute to that? On and on and on. Well, we can then solve for something and I might be able to actually tell you, hey, look, you're not going to get a 22% consistent return year (laughs) over year, but you might not need that, right? If you're Mm -hmm. willing to save consistently $2,000 a month, whatever, I'm making these numbers up from now over the next 15 years and receive a 65 or 7% rate of return using whether it's a diversified portfolio or a certain style of investing, you're going to say, all right, that's what needs to be done. Let's focus on that. And it's achievable. And it's not something that's impractical, right? We always want to look at this stuff with a lens of practicality.
1: Yeah. And I think that's an important question. What's your why? Like, I think a lot of people approach their finances and don't really have any kind of plan or goals. And it's like, or do you want to retire? Do you want to achieve financial independence? I think that's a super important consideration.
0: It's cliche. I know what the standard ones are, but they apply to almost everybody. Most everyone I meet would prefer not to work their entire lives, even on the softer side, looking for happiness, generally linked to having time to do what you want to do in the way that you want to do it and all of that all of these lovely things. But then again, there's very specific goals that people have as well. Starting businesses, doing some experiential stuff that they want to do before their lives are over, whether that's travel or a certain go to outer space or something along
1: those lines. <laughs> yeah, there's maybe.
0: no shortage of very individualized goals that I've heard out of people that aren't just send kids to college, retire, buy a home, and nothing wrong with any of those things. Those things are usually in the hunt. Think about the American dream or really anyone's dream.
1: Cool. So your practice, you've decided to focus on millennials. So millennials now are pretty much age 25 to 40 for some reason. I'm technically a millennial, but for some reason, people associate millennials with, they're still like 17 year olds in hoodies and (laughs) it's
0: 22 living in our parents' basement. (laughs) We got participation trophies around us collecting dust. Yeah. that's, That's pretty spot on for the stereotype.
1: Yeah. So what made you decide to focus on millennials and what are some of the unique challenges that millennial investors might face?
0: Yeah, I love the question. So I moved to New York City in 2008, 2008, October to chase my then college girlfriend, now wife, Heather. She was in law school at the time. And when I got off the plane at JFK, right around there to move up to the north, Lehman collapsed within days before or after the sky was pretty much falling. And I watched my entire generation. I'll be 39 at the end of this month. And that places me firmly in the geriatric millennial space. Don't believe in zennials. That's a myth. Plain. Gen X or Gen Y. You don't get to live in the middle of these two things. All kidding aside. So I watched the great financial recession kind of unfold in real time from Park Avenue in New York City, having left my father's business to work in another wealth management firm. At the time, I thought, we're just going home tomorrow. This was bad timing. Talk mm-hmm. about a bad timing analysis here. That would be the worst of it. But I stuck around and was able to help a lot of people in that practice and really cut my teeth in arguably the most challenging economic environment and financial markets and the Great Depression. Clearly, a different world in 2008, and the 1920s. So survived that, learned a ton. But noticed that my peers were really getting a delayed start and no one was helping There was no formal education or understanding around personal finance. And now there's no jobs and student loan debt piled up high and payments due. And just a complete financial mess for a lot of my friends that were super bright, are super bright hard-working, a lot of the ambition, I would and still do bet on them every day of the week because I know they're superstars and they're going to keep going. I have a very proud millennial here. There's not too many generations who have a childhood where you grew up in the non-internet and internet world. It's extremely unique to be a digital native, but also appreciate a world where that didn't exist in your childhood. I think that paired with the pressure that our parents, boomers have put upon us has created quite an interesting workhorse that really does appreciate a lot of things on both sides of the generation spectrum here. So I really looked at that as probably one of the greatest opportunities to build a practice around I'm from South Florida, from Boca Raton, which is hands down the retirement capital of the world. So my formal training in wealth management is obviously around retirees. And as great as uh, working with anyone is and helping them, my heart was more with my peers who clearly were going through it. And I figured if I could invest in them before they had a dollar to invest with me, I would be able to work with them for a very long period of time. I would be thought of as having been there before any money was made or mm-hmm. investment were acquired. And that was the bet. And I kind of figured that out in business school at nighttime as everyone around me was someone I wanted to work with. Everyone was working full-time jobs and heading down at NYU at night to go further their education in hopes that, ironically, a graduate degree would help lift them and push them through what was a very tough time for my classmates and I. And that worked out. You know, I launched my firm seven years ago, specifically geared towards working with millennials. That was a dirty word, as we talked about in the beginning here, a lot of negative connotation. I got laughed at. I just got straight up laughed at by wealth managers and industry folk because they couldn't comprehend why I would want to work with a generation or a demographic that had no assets. You know, you think about primarily how wealth management generates revenues and is through asset management fees. Go back long enough. It's commissions, right? Mm-hmm has to actually be assets in motion or invested in order to generate, that's false. You can make a wonderful business in wealth management through fee-only financial advice and planning. You can do investment management on top of that. You can incorporate insurance and credit and all other components of people's financial lives and create a wonderful business and really have impact positively for people. So I thought that was short-sighted of anyone who said, if you cared about growing your wealth management firm over the next 20, 30 years, how are you not investing in the next generations of wealth? And what are you going to do when that wealth transfers from your clientele to their children? If you've alienated them or have not made it conducive for them to come over and receive value and help like their parents have, those kids are out the door. And any survey that I've seen says that this is all but true. High 90% chance you are not getting the assets to stick with your firm when your clients pass away, when those parents pass away and that wealth transfers to their children. I didn't design the firm around that. I kind of just binned in terms of an external effect that would indeed and has at the very beginning here started to take place. I imagine I'll see a lot more of that, but for the 90 something percent of those who won't receive it, guess where it is going to go. It's going to go to the advisors that are focusing on working with those children. So it's another kind of long-term component to this overall long-term game that I've been playing since my late 20s.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, I totally can relate to what you went through in the financial crisis. Like I lived through it too. I think our generation was uniquely affected by it to go into a job market that was that tough for that many years. It was horrible. Do you think that that has uniquely So when I think of millennials and then their age, They seem to be a group of people that were really affected by that terrible job market, which lasted for like eight years. Do you think that affects their risk tolerance and preferences in ways that's different from other generations?
0: Solid question. I'll speak for myself, which I think might be a decent proxy for clients. It's interesting in that it doesn't matter how well our clients are doing or our generation is doing in the section that's doing really well here. Like, all right, we got it under control. We got the job, went through a low interest rate phenomenon bull market that lasted a really long time. I mean, yeah, those who really worked hard dug themselves out of those holes in the first few years, were able to refinance debt, perhaps buy homes with low mortgage rates. I know my wife and I took advantage of the bank formerly known as First Republic Banks offer to... I guess we were part of its reason for its collapse. No, just like, we were able to refinance law school debt and business school debt sub 3%, which is a game changer, like literal game changer versus 6 to 7% on a much longer note on the federal government balance sheet. Mm you know, huge. You see light at the end of the tunnel and by our mid 40s, we'll be done paying off debt without the need to accelerate it because it's uh, cheaper. But enough about me. I'm kind of creating a framework here, at least to give an idea as to how more conservatively leaning we are, relatively speaking, right? Now we're getting into our late 30s, early 40s. Typically, you don't see a big movement in risk tolerance even there relative to your 20s. I think it's pretty understandable if you're in your mid to late 20s, you can be very risk on. We want to define that as a 100% equity portfolio. Sure. Yeah. Perhaps you have all digital assets in there. You're trying stuff. You're okay with that. You can replace those losses, hopefully with income and additional savings if you're doing things right. You get to your late 30s and 40s, have a couple kids and a mortgage, you might take a step into being a little bit more risk adverse. What's that mean? Maybe we're talking risk-adjusted portfolios, that's 80-20. And if there's an opportunity in the bond market, which could be today, you're actually looking like a 100% equity portfolio. It's not that big of a difference. It's really when you step into the the 60-40 arena there, that classic 60-40 portfolio, you're signaling like there's perhaps financial independence around the corner. I really do need to pay a little bit more attention to preserving capital. My years of being able to save and replace are not like they were in my 20s and 30s. So to see older millennials, take a 70, 30 or 80, 20 stance is pretty normal. But rather than express it in terms of what an allocation might look like, Mm -hmm. just let it speak for itself. You have a generation. And again, I'm focusing this from like the older side. At the older end of this generation, your bookends are great financial recession, right? Mm -hmm. Traumatic and COVID. (laughs) pandemic. These are the bookends over a very long cycle. Granted, again, a lot of good stuff happened within the cycle that you could take advantage of to put yourself in a good spot if you worked your butt off. But these are traumatic bookends with a lot of traumatic stuff in, in between. Right, And a lot of that, obviously, out of the pandemic. So we're pretty traumatized. I also think having become digital natives at a time when we didn't even know what that really meant, Mm -hmm. we've bombarded our own brains with more social media than any other generation. We've ingrained ourselves into noise more than any other generation. So it's pretty messy up there. And that has, in my opinion, translated into a little bit more of a conservative stance than perhaps we would be normally. But again, it's case by case basis. I could show you 45 to 50 year olds who have no problem not owning a single bond or holding cash.
1: Gotcha. Cool. So when you think about debt, like you talk about college debt and how millennials are uniquely affected by college debt, and student loan debt. What's your attitude about debt? So on one end of the spectrum, you've got like the Dave Ramsey scorched earth, no debt, there's probably a lot between like ways that you look at it. What's kind of your attitude about debt?
0: Yeah, so debt's a tool, right? I think when Mm -hmm. debt's used appropriately, it can be very powerful. There's not an organization in the world that isn't using debt to finance or facilitate its operations in some capacity. I mean, I'm sure there are some debt free companies out there, but find me a mega cap or a large gap company that's not using debt as a tool to grow, expand, fund operations, whatever it may be, research development, things Mm -hmm. like that. So on one hand, debt, powerful tool, like in our personal lives, let's get out of the corporate world and now bring it to the personal retail world. Most people can't go buy a house without having a mortgage. Most people Mm -hmm. can't car without a car loan. These are powerful tools that allow us to acquire things that we need to live. It is when debt is used irresponsibly that it becomes incredibly dangerous and toxic. If we don't have constraint or discipline around spending, for example, and we're using our credit cards as our personal piggy bank, you're going to run foul. You're going to have some tough times here dealing with monstrous interest rates on a balance that is all but set up as a trap that you'll never get out of unless you really change those behaviors. And the sooner the better. That's my take on it. Certainly, you got the Dave Ramseys of the world who take a very radical approach to it because, in my opinion, he probably thinks people are stupid and don't have self-control. And rather than appreciate that people aren't stupid and they can make good decisions, that will just remove all the gray area and say, debt bad, get rid of it. And Mm -hmm. I have a modicum of appreciation for that, but I would think people aren't all stupid again, and they can hopefully find a better balance between using debt as a tool to their advantage and reining in the use of debt inappropriately or in Mm -hmm. a way that leads to financial destruction. So that's my general take on it. However... In practice, it's not as black and white, right? Any wealth management practice, pretty much the drum is beat to the tune of your clients' lives and just life in general. So life isn't a straight line. it never is. So what what does that mean? It means that finding the balance requires, again, that discipline and consistency between using that tool appropriately and not clients that take the attitude debt equals bad. I've learned in my experience that you know it's a highly emotional thing. Having dealt with billions upon millions of dollars in student loan, dad, graduate, undergraduate through millennial demographic that I serve, you can see how emotional I see in my own household. My wife taking out 300 grand to go to law school and then promises that were, air quote, the promises here that were made not being kept due to 2008 through 2010 has become an extraordinarily emotional thing. And it's taken many, many years for it not to be so do this another way, client. I'm trying to give you an example here of how tricky it can be sometimes. The client getting ready to retire in, in great, you know, non-millennial, obviously getting ready to retire in great shape to do so. One of the things they've been doing leading up to retirement has been making additional payments to their mortgage at like 2.75 mm-hmm. percent, and. You know financially it doesn't make a whole lot of sense hey would you like to guarantee 2.75 or run the risk adjusted dice of fetching let's be super let's be conservative five percent you know like
1: that's a decent
0: two and three quarters to five that's a decent spread (laughs) i would rather get the five what if it's six or seven it looks even more appealing but They say, uh, no, it's a hard no. And if you beat someone up, particularly in a client relationship over arguably financially in their best interest versus what's psychologically in their best interest, Mm -hmm. you're gonna erode that relationship and it's going to make both people upset. Again, the point being that navigating debt because it's inherently an emotional experience often tied to our identities with money from how we grew up, it's a tricky subject.
1: Yeah, okay, fair enough. Now for student loan debt, do you think, attitudes are changing about student loan debt? Because I think back when I was younger and I was going to college, the attitude was kind of like, oh, well, just do take out the student loan debt you got to take out and it'll work out in the long run. And that was kind of a bill of goods. So do you think that that attitude's changing? You think people are changing their preferences there?
0: I do. I think I've seen some positive trends out of the younger generations who've learned from their millennial counterparts and Gen X counterparts that when you take out this debt or you go to college, there's a value proposition here. And you are making an investment that requires a return on that investment. And while I'm sure I really wish a lot more people thought this way, but like you take out that debt, there's a number waiting for you when you graduate. Mm -hmm. And if you're not prepared to understand how you're going to deal with that monthly figure, you're potentially going to find yourself repaying or a mistake that you made many years prior. I think the media and folks like you and I have done particularly a good job of demonstrating the pitfalls and drawdowns of carrying too much debt. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're seeing it again right now, now that, uh, you know, Secure Act 2.0 has expired in terms of the freeze of interest and payments on student loan federal debt. So Mm -hmm. first payments due this month after what's almost been a three-year hiatus, there'll be yet another reminder how those payments impact individuals, consumers, and the economy overall. So yeah, we've made a, Heather and I have written a book about it. and not the only people who've written about it, blogged about it, made content around it. The whole student loan epidemic has hit many radars, but universities and the current higher education apparatus is particularly effective at making sure that you understand there's a better future for you. If you go get a college degree with all areas of personal finance, there's a level of self-responsibility that we need to have. If you are blindly taking out $100,000 in debt without an idea as to how you're going to make a $900 a month payment upon graduation, what job that looks like, what city you're in, what's rent going to cost, and back into what salary you need to make and have enough understanding of taxes to know that that gross number ain't what you're taking home. <laughs> what about your deductions like you know, paying for healthcare and your cell phone and all these fixed expenses? If you can't model that out, it's to some degree before you take out a massive amount of debt. We got a big problem on our hands. And that right there is the fundamental issue. Yes, two fundamental issues. One, cost of college cannot continue ballooning the way it has on the right-hand side. Look, guys, banks and the federal government, they're willing to give you the money. You know, give it to you if you want it. But if you don't know what to do with it or what that means right? That's the part where unfortunately no one has taught us what to do with that or what that means. You'll run into an issue that's not a great one upon graduation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I hope more people are approaching it that way where they're saying, hey, more kids today are like, what's my plan? What's this going to look like? What's my income going to look like?
0: Is that job actually waiting for me? Is that income waiting for me? I think there's also a question around when I think about my daughter's almost eight and four and a half year, they got some time before they start school. Like, Will, and our clients have young kids too, what will higher education look like by the time they go to school? Is it going to, does the skills and tools being offered by institutions today match the job market of tomorrow?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you've also written a lot about marriage and finances, and you have a blog about that, the joint account. So what are your thoughts on that it's particularly in the topic of separating finances for married couples. Do you think married couples should separate their finances or combine it or what's your take on that?
0: Yeah, I got a hard take on that. Part line in the sand. It should all be joint, as the name of the blog would suggest. By the way, this blog exists in anticipation of a book we're writing, our second book around joint finances and now. Oh, cool our dynamics between marriage and money. It's called the merge. And we're working feverishly on that. It'll be a little while before we see that one. But the joint account is here to at least provide week to week uh, is our goal guidance in navigating your financial life with the person that you love. Speaking of how you approach that, one of the first Q&A pieces I wrote was how do we merge our finance and should we merge our financial lives together? Look, I think this is a team sport. It's tough because we have our own money identities, whether they're good ones or we know them well or not. We form them well before we meet that special someone, the person that we love. I mean, they are shaped by our cultural, religious upbringing experiences, whether you grew up poor or wealthy, whether you came from a blended or mixed family or a product of divorce came from entrepreneurs, whether your parents were spendthrifts or misers, what was around you at that time. All of these factors go into creating our own identities with money, which are often a mess. We carry that into our adult lives. And then what happens? We meet another person and we love them and we want to be with them forever. And more than likely, they're a mess too with their own identity. (laughs) So you got two people that are a complete mess with their relationship with money or haven't really thought about it. At best, they're okay with it. But in my experience, you don't see a lot of this. Just go look at the stats of divorce or conflict in marriages. It's typically around money. Mm -hmm. So we're now going to smash these two lives together and create an even bigger mess around (laughs) money. We need to get familiar with those identities and actually understand where the person's coming from. There's a lot of emotional and psychological work that goes into that. But I'm beating around the bush in terms of whether people should merge their financial lives together. The answer is yes. I really have a preferred structure in which I want people to operate. I need there to be you know radical transparency. There should be secrets being held from anyone here. And there's a place and a time to have individual accounts and be able to do nice things like take care of gifts for one another or you know the small Venmo you know electronic transactions. Other might not care what you did with your boyfriends or your girlfriends or what have you, because you went out to dinner with a group, stuff like that, or you owe Susie 20 bucks. Okay, there's rules around that. But joining your financial life needs transparency. That means I want to see a joint checking account, right? I want you to operate out of a place where everyone can see everything. I feel that if you're both working, that money is being generated for the good of the household. Again, you're on the same team. There is very little I. There is we at this point. And and that only becomes more of a we when kids get involved and joint goals start to form. You rarely hear spouses say like, well, I'm going to retire here and you're going to retire then. You know, like, (laughs) no, we want to do this all together. So with that being said, being able to see everything, have money come in and out of your financial lives in a transparent way from one place. So pay all bills and operate the household out of one spot. Joint savings to have those reserves. And yes, everyone should have a joint checking account. Agree on an amount of money, whether it's $500, $1,000, $5,000, however much money, and have an open conversation around, hey, if that got depleted, what are the rules around filling those back up? You just don't want one spouse being like, hey, you know, I spent $1,000 again and you (laughs) another $1,000. Why is this happening every week? This is not good. You probably should have a conversation about that. So that's an account structure standpoint, but there's so much work that goes into it. And because of that, we're writing this and we're creating this content. It's always easier to say things than do things, right? And this is one of those areas where it is, I honor how difficult it is to create this joint structure in which two people can harmoniously communicate and operate their financial lives. But guess what? You're going to be together forever. And every day that you live and breathe, you need to interact with money getting off the grid and becoming mountain people. Even then, I would argue you got to work with money. So we want everyone harmoniously doing that and sharing in that. And it's more than just how money comes in and out of our lives. It's about equity and fairness in our relationships. We want to make that as strong as possible so people can be happy together.
1: So when you think about married couples, so say someone was, say a younger person is getting married and they want to avoid a lot of the pitfalls that people tend to fall into. Because like you said, money as a top reason for divorce. So what would be your advice to some of them to avoid some of those pitfalls and issues?
0: Yeah, I think finding a way to consistently communicate with one another is a really good start. Look, they're saying, again, doing. How many people do you know meet regularly or have a safe and comfortable space to talk about what's going on in their financial lives? This runs the spectrum of conversations around the identity component. What was it like for you growing up? What was your first experience with money, both good and bad? How did your parents treat money in your life? How do you view money? What about money is important to you? Experiences versus material possessions. How many times do we create the opportunity to sit with the person that you love and listen to those experiences to share in those experiences. That's deep stuff. Hopefully you talk about your feelings on many other topics, family, otherwise, with your loved one. Why not with money as well? I think you need to. So there's that. And then there's actual numbers. Like there's there's data and understanding what the behaviors, understanding where the behaviors come from, that's deep. And understanding what the behaviors actually Actually, were that's just looking at where you spent your money, right? And we want to bury, a lot of people just want to bury their head in the sand around that. What's the bill? <laughs> oh God. This month ran hot, this month ran cold. Most people don't even know if a month ran hot or cold. They just see the number to the bill and hope there's enough cash in the account to to pay that. And if not, they're they're gonna carry that debt and get charged interest and it turns into that giant mess we talked about. We we're getting the debt and, and the use and, and the use of credit. But being able to regularly and consistently look at what behaviors are doing uh to your financial life is is cash going down or up based on those behaviors you know the most detailed approach is actually going through expenses over the last month or last quarter is someone going to play the role of a chief financial officer and one isn't because they're maybe the chief operating officer of the house that's fine at some point you got to sit down and share and provide meeting notes and make sure each other understands. I, I really don't believe anyone is should be kept out of or be made unaware or should be unaware of what's going on. You, you know, one more party in the relationship, we don't need, in other words, two CFOs. There can be one that really drives the process, you know, collects the data, you know, organizes it, but both parties are responsible for understanding it.
1: Mm-hmm. Right? Absolutely. Um,
0: and that very simple construct is, is largely ignored. You know, usually we, we very much go into our gender roles or our, you know, operational roles in, in the family and leave it up to one person. And that's not helpful at all. When you're playing a team game, you just yeah. can't, you know, not everyone's got a LeBron on their team, you know, at all times and even that <laughs> you need you support, if even if you're a LeBron or or a superstar, if we're using, you know, sport terms to do this. So look at that, you know, the, the the level and depth of communication and the consistency of it is the absolute core of being able to operate as a financial team.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. It is funny when you have people who have totally different kind of values around money, probably hard to reconcile. Hard. It that. is
0: so, so hard. You got two people who love each other dearly and maybe have been together for a while trying to combat decades of experience that has created their identity is a lot of open openness and willingness and understanding and listening needs to take place to get there. And in a perfect world, you do get there. In the less perfect world, which is the one we live in, you get there step by step or you make progress and strides towards something that is a complete and full understanding. I don't think you'll unfortunately ever get to that point because you can never really put yourself in someone else's shoes.
1: Definitely. So moving on to some investing stuff. So What are your thoughts on individual stock trading by individuals? So personally, I do a bit of both. So I I have a passive account. I have my active stock picking account. Where do you think people should should land on that? Is stock picking something most people should avoid or is it okay? Or what do you think?
0: Something most people should avoid. I think (laughs) uh, there's always a time and a place and room for individual stock selection in in Mm -hmm. portfolios. I dub it the opportunity portfolio. I I also think doing this in conjunction with disciplined investing can actually bolster disciplined investing and make for a more complete investment strategy. So I'm not completely poo-pooing, you know, uh, stock picking here. I do choose individual stocks. I think there's a difference between stock picking, holding in conviction companies versus trading, right? I think Mm -hmm. uh, there should be a distinction between these two things. There are plenty of companies in in my IRA that, you know, I... uh, Believe in and will be holding on to for a very long period of time. More, more of a tech investor. When I think about those things, your Nvidia's of the world and Tesla. I mean, this is a very cliche, you know, portfolio of tech stocks in here. But you know, I have conviction and I do believe, and I won't be selling them anytime soon. But this makes up less than five, tops ten percent of investable net worth, and that is advice that I preach as well. You know, I, I practice what I preach, which is. Look, if you're going to take five to 10% of your investable net worth and put it into some high conviction companies and have the discipline to hold on to them, at best, you'll get premium, right? You'll generate some alpha. Hooray, you yeah, know, good. Maybe you pare it down, <laughs> and diversify, uh, or or you let it ride and hope you continue to build an outsized position in a winner. And you get that three, four, five plus dagger, you know, that'd be great. Worst case, I haven't seen someone really bring it to zero. <laughs> I think, by, by the way, most of the time, clients are buying mega cap -cap things. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, go ahead, 5% of your portfolio. What do they do? They go buy Microsoft, (laughs) you know, or they go buy Apple. Yeah, Uh, Great. You know, you just kind of overweighted the S&P 500 there. Nothing wrong. No, I get it. It's cool. I mean, look, this served investors extraordinarily well over the last 10 years. I know this is a value value stock program. All hail the growth stocks. Hey, Microsoft
1: uh, was a value stock 10 years ago. So it had like a 10p...
0: Yeah, exactly. Until when parabolic growth style you know, all yeah. of a sudden, you know, it's a chameleon, I guess. Worst case, you know, they, they take five or ten percent of their portfolio and have it, you know, and because they just pick some stuff, you know, that, that didn't work out for them. What then happens, they probably realize they never want to do that again they double down and stick to long-term disciplined investing. Or uh, they want to try again, you know, okay, you know, again, hopefully, the other part of their portfolio has grown, hopefully, their investment rate has increased, in which it would create a a justifiable reason to allocate a few more bucks to to those individual picks. Otherwise, probably not. It's like, hey, you haven't really increased your savings rate, and market hasn't been in our favor. I'm not sure taking more money, you know, and putting it into individual plays is what we should be doing. You ask them, is that what they want to do? And they make a decision. Cool.
1: And let's go up the risk continuum a little bit. What are your thoughts on crypto? I'm kind of a crypto skeptic, but what's you, what you're thinking about it? Where should people they have say they have an interest in it? Where do like how do you think they should handle that in their portfolio?
0: Absolutely, early adopter in the crypto space. Stumbled into it when a friend called me up uh, in 2013 and said, "Hey, uh, internet space money, Bitcoin, hash rates, hashtags." No, just kidding. A lot of terms I'd never heard in my life before, and I just Figured I had a buddy trying to ask for, all right, what do you ask? How much money are you asking for here? What do you want to do? He wants to buy a Bitcoin miner. So we did. We went halfsies on a Bitcoin miner in 2013. It's kind of a cool story of a early crypto origin story here. By no means a, a maximalist. I'm a realist when it comes mm-hmm. to this, despite being one of the very few financial advisors that you can say has mined Bitcoin since 2014. Six months after receiving that uh, miner, it was obsolete. It's just... How that works without getting into hash rates and processing power required to continue to mine bitcoin so we did fairly well i wish it was enough to say i i could stop what i'm doing for a living but uh i learned more in value than i probably made but certainly not upset with that so I'm, i've been playing with house money with Bitcoin. I mean, that was mm-hmm. 400 bucks of Bitcoin back in 2014. Yeah. So I've seen. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. I know. I've, <laughs> I've seen some, you know, figures that would make me brag and I've seen drawdowns that would make most people puke, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, have done that multiple times now. So for me, I think I've become a better, more disciplined investor because of Bitcoin, particularly having navigated drawdowns, right? We always joke how, oh, have I only bought Amazon or Apple back in, you know, the 80s or 90s? <laughs> Yeah, but you would have had to survive two to three, you know, 90% plus drawdowns. In which you definitely would have vomited on yourself a few times and vowed never to invest in that space again. We really undersell those points there. So, in my experience with Bitcoin, my opinion is this: I think there's room for digital store of value. Money's a construct, right? The the paper form, the shiny gold <laughs> rock form, and even the digital form, guys. Mm-hmm. Um, if we got ten trillion dollars worth of uh, gold out there, it suffice to say there can be five to ten, if not more, trillion dollars worth of you know uh, Bitcoin. It, it, it does have utility to store value digitally and you know be able to put it on a, on a ledger and how many geopolitical events do you need to say hey I'm going to take the value that I've built up in my life and be able to you know walk across a border with it um, I just think again room, room for uh, something like a digital gold. Um, there's no reason for it and I, I keep my own I keep it right there, right I'm, I'm not I'm not looking to save the world. Or solve inequality. Although I think there are some really great attributes of, and possibilities with with Bitcoin, but uh, just digital store of value. Let's let's leave it. Let's leave it there. And and you know, thus a digital asset class that can stand the test of time and get to a get to a spot where you know its its valuation is likely higher from where it is. I'm eagerly awaiting uh, that spot Bitcoin ETF. I think there's room for that as well. Maximalists would disagree with me on that. Uh, Ethereum is the only other cryptocurrency that I've seen utility out of in terms of smart contract work. It's just, you know, NFTs were fun and great, but of course, digital, you know, and pixelated squids or rocks being worth millions <laughs> and
1: millions of dollars. You know, I hope,
0: I hope it. Hope you all sold. You know, I had a blast and, and you know, experimented and, and even did an NFT project ourselves around the theme of coffee. Created a lot of value and a lot of fun for people who uh, decided to to experiment with us. i having to do all this in a very compliant way, which we did. Um, you know, um, there, there was no roadmap to know there. There was, hey, cool, let's, you know, give out a whole ton of coffee gear from some
1: awesome sponsors
0: <laughs> and people. So everyone felt like they got, you know, of value out of it it was super fun but i again in that forum as well learned learned a ton early days super early days uh very speculative um you're gonna see a lot of volatility um, virtually everything else outside of those two, um, we've seen either come crashing down. We've seen exchanges. How about the centralized part of decentralized, you know, world of, of almost widespread corruption and fraud? You know, we got the SBF trial going on right now. Yeah, um, yeah, well, that's brutal. You can't. You know, it's less of an indictment towards uh, crypto and decentralized finance. It's more of an indictment towards centralized finance and grifting and, and fraudsters um and hucksters and all of that yeah you, ha- you saw it over more on the the de- on, on the centralized uh, part not not that there weren't a litter uh, uh, thousands of worthless cryptos you know being traded with the hopes of being the next you know best thing here so that that certainly is the tool of argument over there
1: okay cool so um you are a coffee aficionado like how that interest come from where where does it land um you know what's your favorite kind of coffee I, if I'm talking to you, I have to talk about this. Yeah, you're
0: uh, <laughs> you're, you're being very nice to me. It started uh, when I moved to New York City. You know, I never really yeah. uh, thought about the wide world of coffee, uh, being a coffee connoisseur, until uh, I had an opportunity to realize there's great coffee out there. Um, mm-hmm. And your morning cup was was pretty dang good. I mean, I'd, I'd wake up and go to the the gray bar passageway in grand central terminal, uh, on my way to work. And, uh, there'd be one of my favorite, uh, roasters and, and coffee shops, Joe coffee company out of New York city and, uh, get a cup. And I'm like, dang, this is, this is really good. You know, this is better than <laughs> uh, you uh know Starbucks or whatever garbage water was being served up in South Florida. It's pretty much Starbucks down there or you're yeah. making it yourself. But now there's coffee culture virtually everywhere, uh, but not not when I was not, not back in 2006 or seven or something like that. And then my wife uh, bought me uh, bought me a Chemex, which is a, a, a pour over machine, if you will, just a, a, a glass blown, you know, looks like a giant beaker, um, <laughs> filters and a kettle and uh, a bag of coffee. And uh, we, were, we were on our way, you know, and there were thousands upon thousands of handcrafted cups later. Uh, over uh, uh, a decade plus has now uh, been consumed. It's my morning meditation. I'm I'm in charge of the coffee program every morning. We got... God knows how many devices (laughs) every week, every week I get a, I get a couple bags delivered Uh, every other week. I get a a couple bags delivered from my favorite roaster. So uh, here's my rule. So I'm sure is what you're looking for. You know, I don't care how you drink your coffee. You know, I drink it black. I don't care if you put cream and sugar in it. I care that you're drinking good coffee Mm -hmm. and good coffee doesn't need to be expensive. Good coffee just needs to have a few criteria, you know, one fresh coffee beans and getting them whole, uh, not pre, ground is is the ticket here. If you see a lot of bags will have a roast state on it. If you're drinking coffee that was roasted more than usually four, but let's go with six weeks ago or older, that's probably some stale coffee you got there. So if you're busting open a can of folders or chock full of nuts and it's pre-ground you know that thing's been sitting somewhere for months on end that, that's not fresh coffee It's just it's just not uh it's very commercialized coffee so fresh coffee full and then grinding that coffee um if you got that little you know push push top grinder you know the things mm-hmm. spins around no no that's for herbs um <laughs> not for coffee why because you're going to get a different consistency in how you grind that you're going to have finer grinds and coarser grinds it's just not a consistent you you want something that's called a burr grinder something that uses conical burrs so that the grind is even and you don't have to spend a ton of money on that you can get a number of good grinders for under a hundred dollars so yeah we're already spending money here i get it but we need a grinder we need some fresh pick your favorite roaster your favorite roast i drink light roasts exclusively you can taste them better they have more caffeine in case you're wondering no dark roasts and that burn that's not more caffeine that's just more burn (laughs) <laughs> this is more burnt. No, you know, this is less flavor. So people usually, you know, have that mistake of thinking, oh, the darker the roast, you know, the stronger the coffee. Not at all. It's the other way around. Actually, mm. you're you're burning off oils and uh, flavor notes and caffeine when when you roast longer. So you got your whole beans. You got them fresh. You got a good grinder. And I don't care what method you really use. I mean, just make sure you've got a drip coffee maker. Fantastic. Clean it out. Use some white vinegar and water. Run a few cycles and get it going. You can you, you can use a $50 to $100 coffee maker and, and really get some amazing coffee, assuming you got a good grind and good beans for it. Um, or you can get all fancy, you know, fancy pull shots of espresso. If you're into that, make all kinds of drinks. That is a whole other animal. Um, and, uh, you know, there's the coffee enthusiast. And then there's the espresso guy or girl there. They're in in a world of their own. But whether you want to use a French press, make a pour over, different kinds, uh, that's the trick to uh, drinking great coffee. So you you don't need to go crazy. You don't need to be me or or a coffee nut. You just need good whole fresh beans, a good grinder and a decent drip coffee maker. And you can have really excellent coffee uh, every morning and you can try different stuff, different flavor profiles, roast a whole bit. You can have fun with it.
1: So if I were to go out and buy, in your opinion, the best coffee, what where should I go? What should I get? <laughs>
0: I'll, I'll tell you what I'll tell you what I get. You know, very sub, very subjective. I mean, and by the way, there there are there are coffee varietals that that are super expensive. I mean, over the holiday, my subscription service was nice enough to send me what I think is a forty dollar bag of coffee, and we're not talking your your twelve your traditional pound bag. We're we're like talking like eight ounces, so less. And and yes, for me, I can tell this is some really special coffee that we're drinking. Uh, it's okay, my palate's there. But you can drink some of the world's best coffee for eighteen to twenty dollars uh, per for a pound a bag um it's absolutely wild that you have access to that much selection that fresh from roasters all over the country that can ship to your door within days trade coffee or drinktrade.com is an amazing website to do just that they partner with a ton of roasters i almost exclusively drink coffee from a, a roaster called tandem out of portland maine there are a couple bake shops there but uh, are, are mostly known for their coffee roasting skills uh, all light roasts, all different kinds. Every other week, I get a bag from uh, Latin America uh, and a bag from Africa. So uh, you'll be drinking, uh, you know, two two very distinctive regions of the world. The African coffee is usually sweeter, smell like bowls of candy, if you will, and the Latin American coffee is a little more grounded, earthier. I think when people smell that, that's what they typically, you know, have the, so, oh, that's coffee. You know, that's that's what they're, I didn't know coffee could smell like a bowl of cherry candy. Yeah. There's some real sweet smelling stuff out there. And then there, I've had coffee from China. I've had coffee from India, all over the world. There's some interesting places where coffee is being grown.
1: I'm into it. I want to buy some.
0: Sounds good to yeah. me.
1: <laughs> all right. Well, before we wrap up, anything you wanted to add for the listeners?
0: Oh, you know, just pump my own bags here. Really interested in getting people to check out the joint account. I think that's where the focus is right now, not just in the practice and helping couples navigate money in their lives, but also anyone that's willing to want that for themselves can can go check that out. It's over on Beehive. You can check me out on social media across the board. There's always a link tree link in the bio, but the joint account.beehive.com. But again, you can just Google around and find me and all that stuff. Other than that, slow and steady wins the race. If we're talking about investments, I really do believe that if we can control things that are in our control and our own behaviors and emotions, we, we can be successful investors. And there's a lot that goes into that. So I don't want anyone thinking any of this is easy. None of it is. Life isn't easy. You don't win it. You survive it. Personal finance, investing, and all of these topics get filed under the same uh, umbrella as uh, anything in the self-care and self-help categories, diet, exercise, mental and physical health. Yeah our money too. Uh, Wealth is health, health is wealth. 100% believe in that.
1: Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for your time.
0: Well, thanks for having me.
1: Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go
0: to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free
1: access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.